and welcome to this week's episode of Pop Culture Junkies. I'm Michelle. I'm Steph. And we are going to have a special guest, Scott Ryan, on today to talk about his new book about moonlighting. But before that, what have you been up to for this week, Steph? I am doing a lot of catching up for Camp NaNoWriMo. Camp NaNoWriMo started July 1st, and I have not been very good about being a camper with my writing. So (laughs) I'm hopeful that I can catch up before the month is over, but (laughs) that is something that I'm trying to work on. (laughs) How many words is it going to a month for the camp? So with camp, you can actually decide. And I unfortunately decided that I was going to write 30,000 words this month, but based on my current trajectory, I might need to edit that and cheat and change change my goal. <laughs> <laughs> no more fun for you, Steph. Get writing. Okay. Crack the whip on me. <laughs> what about you? I went and checked the mail today for the first time in probably a week and a half. And my love of shopping really has to stop, but I got all kinds of cute things, so I was all happy, but I had just come back with the cat from the vet, and I didn't have enough arms to carry everything in, so I shoved it all in his carrier with him, and he's all squished in a corner because my mail took up the rest of his carrier, but... I got so many cute pins and stickers from her. Here Comes the Nerd. She does cosplay kittens. And I have a Captain America kitten and a Winter Soldier kitten and a Sam Wilson Captain America kitten and a Loki kitten. And I'm just like, oh my God, these are the cutest things I've ever seen in my life. And I got a bunch of art from Aaron Leffler of Loki and a Winter Soldier scarf from So Ashtastic. I'm looking at my stack over there. And straw toppers from Lantern Pins of the Millennium Falcon and R2-D2. I'm like, my mail haul was really cute. Barnes doesn't think so, but I thought it was really cute. (laughs) (laughs) My Pop Funkos of uh, Evie and Rick from The Mummy came in. I had a good haul of mail today. Oh, wow. It really sounds like it. (laughs) I was opening packages and I'm all happy because I'd forgot that I'd ordered things. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they've probably been sitting in my mailbox for a week now but... you got a good haul though it sounds like i did get a good haul so i was confused a little bit because as you know i'm in portland mm-hmm. but i left my car with my sister in phoenix mm-hmm. and she texts me Uh, about a a week and a half ago and she said hey sis just wanted to let you know it is not a big crash but my neighbor accidentally backed his corvette into your kia soul um well (laughs) what do you mean it's not a big crash but he hit me anyway (laughs) yeah so basically my car is parked in front of her house and I guess he just kind of backed into it I asked her to send me pictures and it's really not a big dent but he was nice enough to leave his insurance information well that's good and clearly it's the dent is like big enough that it needs to be fixed like it's a little bit bigger than a softball size dent so I contacted my insurance agency and filled out the claim form that they have online 
and then I never heard from them. So yesterday I was thinking about it and I was like, why hasn't my insurance company called me? Like, did I miss their call? And I just maybe wasn't paying attention. I have a bad habit of being distracted. And then maybe I just forgot that they left a voicemail or like, what's going on? So I checked my voicemail and I looked at my screen. And as soon as I tapped the voicemail icon on my iPhone, it said I needed to pick a four digit voicemail pin for some reason. No. So I did that thinking I've already set my voicemail pin. So that was kind of weird. But then once I set my pin, all of a sudden it opened my voicemail screen and apparently I've missed 16 voicemails oh my God. dating back until mid-May. <laughs> oh my gosh. So three of those missed voicemails were from my insurance company. And surprisingly, only five of those missed voicemails was from somebody trying to sell me an extended warranty. Well, hey, that's something at least. <laughs> I go in spurts with those. Sometimes I get a whole bunch in one day and then it'll be quiet for weeks. Oh, yeah. Well, I had a feeling something weird was happening and I had changed my phone settings way back in November. I was getting tired of all the election calls. Yes. So I set up my phone that if it's an unknown number, it it doesn't really ring like it's silent and it basically disappears into the universe. And I still have that setting, even though it's like how many months later? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had to call a couple people and say, I'm so sorry that I missed your voicemail from like two months ago. <laughs> I am kind of just getting it. I kind of felt like an old lady who doesn't know how technology works. <laughs> You're like, I was actually kidnapped and I just got free. And the first mm -hmm. thing I did was check my voicemail and I'm calling everybody back now that I'm home free. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> That'll be my story. It's a good story. I support it. <laughs> <laughs> I took my cat to the vet. That's been my week. <laughs> I mean, the fun part is the interview, so. Yes. Why don't we get started with that? Yes. All right. Today with us is special guest Scott Ryan, author of Moonlighting and Oral History, which was released on June 1st. Scott is a pop culture storyteller and television historian who also authored several other books, including 30 Something at 30, An Oral History, and The Last Days of Letterman. He is the co-publisher at Fayetteville Mafia Press, the managing editor of the Blue Rose Magazine, the director of A Voyage to Twin Peaks, and the host of the Red Room podcast. Scott, welcome to the Pop Culture Junkies. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to be here. And, um, you know, on the thing they sent me, I have to read this. They say, this show features hot takes and cool commentary. And that's the greatest thing I've read today. I want <laughs> hot takes and cool commentary. We are going to give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're here for. <laughs> so before we dig into moonlighting, can you tell us what it's like being a TV historian and what does that mean? Good question. When you, you know, if you find out what it means, uh, let me know and, <laughs> and that'll help me. So basically, it, it was something that I came up with to sort of put the book in context, because this is my third oral history book. And it, it's a way to distinguish my work from someone who is just like watching a show and then doing an 
episode guide or saying what they think happened. Uh, In the work that I do, I want to know exactly what happened. I want to approach these television shows from a journalist or a historian side and get the truth of what actually occurred, not what I think occurred. So the three books you mentioned are all done in the voice of the actual people who created the show. I interview them and then you read their quotes exactly without me monkeying it around so I can make what happened what I want to happen. So I call that television historian or poor person. Could be the same. (laughs) That's cool to have it in their voice. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, I do, I do shoot my mouth off, especially more in the moonlighting book, as I'm getting more confident as a writer, I'm, I'm more able to do that. But for the most part, we want to hear from Sybil Shepard, we want to hear from, you know, the people that made it happen. And so speaking of that, your book does include those interviews with the writers, the directors, the actors that were participating in the show. Um, How is it that you're able to get them to open up so much for your book interviews? You know, I I, I don't know. I, I, I always say everyone has certain talents. And my talent is interviewing people and getting them to be comfortable with me which seems like a great thing to have until you need to plant shrubs in the backyard. And I can't do that. I could interview the guy who's putting the shrubs in, but, you know, or the person who's changing the oil in my car. But I, you know, that's, that's the one talent I have. I'm honestly interested in other people. And I am anxious to hear their answers. And I think that I am i don't come at them with trying to get them in some way. I really just want the truth. And once they realize that my intentions are pure, then I think they're comfortable to open up to me. That makes sense. Yeah. So you've written about 30-something, Letterman, Moonlighting. You directed a piece about Twin Peaks. How did your love for pop culture and classic pre-1990s TV bloom into a career on these topics? Well... I mean, I think in the 90s, I was in my 20s. And I feel like the things that you consume then, are, are they really shape your life, especially like with a show like Twin Peaks. I watched that when I was in college. And it, sh- it definitely shaped my sensibilities. Moonlighting, I watched when I was in high school, and it sort of made me want to be a writer. So when I've g- been able to meet these people and get like a toehold into their world, then that's what I, you know, I want to find out more. And I would do a book on a show that's on now. Like I love Ted Lasso, or there's a new show called Hacks on HBO, but they're never going to let me interview them. Like they have real people interviewing them. They're not letting me into that party. That's why they had that party. Just to keep me out. So, I mean, it's sort of like that is where my love is, but also so much time has passed that it's easier for someone like me, who's, you know, just a regular human that has no connections to anyone uh, to get those interviews. Well, I think I think that that what you're saying is sort of obvious in the Moonlighting book, because So Moonlighting and Oral History, it's the never before told inside story behind the making of the TV series. And one thing that really stood out to me was 
I feel like you can feel your love for that show and that sense of like a a fandom really that is guiding throughout the book. Can you define like what was it about Moonlighting that really first caught your attention? Well, for me, it was the character of David Addison, who was Bruce Willis. Uh, I was 15 when the pilot aired, and my mother said, you have to watch this show that was on last night. I had come home from school the next day, and she was like, you got to watch this detective show. And I was like, I'm not watching it, Mom. I don't like you or your stupid shows. And she was like, just sit down and, you know, try it. I I really think you're going to like it. Well, as soon as David Addison burst on the screen, it, you know, he was different than anything I had seen on television. And he was mouthy and a smart mouth, just like me, just like I wanted to be. I wasn't as funny. And I mean, I kind of was as good looking as Bruce Willis. Um, Probably. Um, But... You know, it just, it really spoke to me. And then the writing was so clever. And at that point, I already had wanted to be a writer. I knew that that's what I wanted to be. It just, you know, it it took a while. But so that's, that's why it, it has always shaped me as a writer. I think that was an interesting aspect is that you as the author of the book clearly identified with David's character, but the like head writer of the series at the same time also was that David character. And then Bruce Willis very much was David the character. So there was a lot of identification that maybe made that two-dimensional person very much a very three-dimensional real world presence would you say yeah i mean that's definitely true and i think the thing about david addison is that he is the man that everyone wishes that they were now i i very clearly say in my opening essay that times have changed um we're talking about how you would feel in 1985 not 2021 Um, because David Addison certainly is not very woke, but we weren't woke in the 80s. No. But at the same time, he does work for a female boss. I mean, his boss, she owns him, and she bosses him around, and that... So so there was, you know, it it was kind of happening there, um... Did you ever watch the show, Stephanie? There's no way you did. Um, Actually, I vaguely remember watching it late at night with my grandmother, who was obsessed with Bruce Willis in Moonlighting, mm-hmm. loved him. But I don't really remember the episodes or why we were watching it. I just remember she loved it, so I watched it with her. Right. Uh, that's how it was for me watching like All in the Family or the Jeffersons with, with my <laughs> grandma. Uh, Michelle, but you, you did watch it, right? I did watch it, yes. So it came out, I was 15 when it came out. So I had, I loved Sybil Shepherd's. She was a strong character for, I mean, I was 15 years old. So I'm like, here's this woman and she is running a business where you really didn't see a lot of women running a business. And then Bruce Willis, who I had no, a huge crush on, you're like, here's this successful woman and this good looking guy is under her and he's funny and he's, he's cool. And I'm just like, that was something to identify, to, to strive. It just showed you that women can do something and still be feminine, but run a business. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it made a big difference in people's lives. And when I talked to Sybil, she wished the character would have gone farther. But I think for the, at the time, it really was 
an impressive step forward compared to the other crappy shows that were on at that time. I mean, you had Remington Steel, but Remington Steel was a man and she had to hide behind it where moonlighting. She was flat out, I run this business. This is my business. I'm not hiding behind a man's name. Exactly. And I, and I think that was a, a big step forward um, in the battle of the sexes at that time. So that's why it's kind of hard, like, you know, the, of us all saying that we identify with David Addison. But the other thing is, and this is a, a thing that I wanted to be sure we captured before this time wipes all of this away. David actually is very romantic. He 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 loves Miss DePesto. He loves Maddie Hayes. It's an act that he's putting on. He he isn't this sexist chauvinistic pig that you think he is when you first meet him. And in television today, if you presented a character like that, the Twitterverse would explode and the show would be gone before you could find out the things that led to his character exactly. being exactly cancel culture. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, that is the thing with the shows in the eighties is a lot of the characters today, the shows don't hold up. And even some of the, most of the nineties, they don't hold up today because of how culture was. You just, it was okay. But yeah, David Addison, he grew and they gave it time to show that he is not, he's not chauvinistic. He is not this ass that's trying to take over her business from her and to demean her. He did care. He did love her. He just had to take his time, grow to show it. Right. I, I agree. And, you know, I'm actually re-watching Star Trek The Next Generation. My wife and I are watching it from the beginning, which I haven't done since it was on back in 87. And, you know, Star Trek is very much known for being ahead of its time and, and um, being inclusive. The show is so sexist and racist in the first season that you're kind of like, oh, my gosh, like, how how is this even on television? So I think all of our senses have really changed. It, it does get better after the second season. But, you know, we're all trained now to really be more inclusive, which is so much better for all of us. But when looking back at old TV, it, it does get tricky. Definitely. As you were interviewing the people who made Moonlighting, did you have any surprising discoveries or saucy behind the scenes stories that were told to you? Quite a bit. <laughs> um, I mean, it was practically all saucy stories um, and everything was a surprise. Some of it made it into the book and a lot of it did not make it into the book. I don't really, my goal is not, I would never work on something for two years to hurt somebody's feelings. That would just not, that's not why I do what I do. So if ever somebody said something that was personal about someone else, it, it's not in the book. If, the things that happen affected work and they affected the schedule or the characters, then to me that's probative, that that matters. That's not somebody saying, I don't like that person or here was this titillating story that, uh, and sometimes it drove my editor a little crazy because they're like, oh, don't, don't you want to put that in? Don't you want to put that in? And I'm like, no, I, I don't right. because it, it's, it's irrelevant. Um, but I still think a lot of it does slip into the book because that was just the truth of working on Moonlighting. It was a high pressured, uh, show and obviously Bruce and Sybil had a very complicated relationship and that played itself out on tabloids across America. Um, I didn't, I just don't think that's as interesting as 
how they got these episodes written and put out in time and battles with the network and things like that. Sybil has a wonderful autobiography, or is it biography? Yeah, autobiography, (laughs) Um, where you can get all kinds of of those details. And, you know, I left that for Sybil to tell. (laughs) The saucier bits. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So something that you specifically called out was that memories are faulty. So with the oral history and the interviews you conducted, if there were competing truths, you left them in. And I think one of the first examples was with Bruce Willis's initial reading and whether or not he was sitting on the table in front of them or the filing cabinet, examples like that. Is that the competing truths? Is that something that you've learned from writing oral histories that that tends to be so? Yes, and and they're my favorite parts of my books. I've done that in all of them. I love when one person says it was, you know, it was raining that day and someone the next person says it was a sunny, beautiful day. And I always leave them in because I think it's important for us to remember, and this is where it goes back to the television historian aspect. You know, in my first couple books, people were saying, well, shouldn't you fix that? And I'm like, oh, no, I should not fix that because that is that shows you what memory really is about. You know, the three of us are having this joint experience right now but each of us are going to remember different things. I mean, I'm going to remember how I was so funny and I was just <laughs> cracking you guys up. So funny. And then you guys are going to remember how, what a jerk he was. Didn't he say it? Like, why did he say that? Like right off the bat, he started in. And that is what our memories do. That's what our life is about. And, you know, If somebody said Jerry Seinfeld was on Friends, I wouldn't put that in the book. I would fix that. I would say, you know, if they said Jerry Seinfeld was on Friends and when Kramer walks in the door, it was Mm -hmm. funny. So, you know, they didn't mean to say Friends. They meant to say Seinfeld. This is probably the worst example I could give. No, I just sat there and racked my brain thinking, was Jerry Seinfeld on Friends? Wait a minute. Let me think. (laughs) (laughs) But but in those things, that person just misspoke. It wasn't Mm -hmm. their memory. You know, there were things like that. I'll fix that and I'll shoot them an email and say, hey, you said friends didn't you mean Seinfeld I don't want anyone to look stupid right Mm -hmm. but um the Bruce Willis audition story is really fascinating because I heard it from everyone who was in the room and everyone told it differently everyone had a different reason that Bruce was out there which is funny as well Mm -hmm. uh and I like that I think it makes it a fun read and it also says I don't know maybe this isn't the exact truth but you're getting the story like the intention of that story is that Bruce Willis walked in that room and knocked all of their socks off. They all were blown away by it. And the little detail of why he was there or where he sat or if he did the audition on a table or not, it probably doesn't matter. What matters is he blew them away. I think part of that too, and one of the things that I really appreciated about your book is that when you're um, including those interview snippets from each of the different people, Some of them recollect things. Some of them don't. I think there was a part where someone was saying like, yeah, Sybil was really mad at me. And then Sybil said, I don't even remember that, you know, 
things like that. It it made you, um, as you're progressing through the book, it feels like you're listening in on those conversations and you're at the table, which is something that was really cool. Well, and, you know, here's another thing that I, I am not a, um, don't edit this out. This is him thinking. This is for dramatic effect. Later on, it wasn't. He was just being dramatic. But, like, I'm not a forceful uh person in my real life either like i i would never impose like if you guys said you hated moonlighting i wouldn't be like i'm not going on your show i'm done with these two like everyone should be different so i like that i'm not an authority in the book there's there's no authoritative decision of what really happened that's for you to make up the reader Take what you want. When Sybil says she doesn't remember, does she not remember? Or does she not want to tell me? Uh, Because I don't know the answer to that. I've had people say like, oh, did Sybil say this? And I asked Sybil every hard question I had to ask her. And you, her answer's in there. Did she really not remember or did she not want to talk to me about it? I don't know. And I'm not smarter than you. We're all in in this earth boat together. (laughs) That's true. I did have that moment when I was reading the story that Sybil told about being in the Lazy Boy with Bruce. I did have that moment where I was like, is that really what happened? Or <laughs> is that just what she wants us to think? <laughs> well, and that is a saucy bit, if to use your guys' phrase, which I think you should use in with the uh, hot takes and the cool commentary and saucy bits, if, you know. Um, but she... <laughs> I, you know, I wondered about that because I didn't, that's, obviously I didn't get Bruce and I, it would be nice to have Bruce tell that story. I don't know that he would have if I would have got the interview. She has, she did tell me that story a couple times. So, you know, at least I know Sybil thinks it happened, uh, whether it did or didn't. I don't know. And, and, you know, I'm pretty open in the beginning of the book saying these are memories. I, I definitely think that the reader is going to get the feeling of what it was like to be behind the scenes. And the feeling was it was crazy. Um, I can tell you my biggest challenge for this book was in the middle of direct, um, interviewing director Alan Arkish. He directed the most episodes of Moonlighting, and he's a very famous TV director. He directed Fame and St. Elsewhere and Ally McBeal and just a ton of things. And he was a great storyteller. And we also did, it was one of the few interviews I did on FaceTime, so I could see his face just like we're getting to do if people are watching the video or um, if they're listening, just imagine that we can you know, uh, we can, they can see all my crazy hand motions. And he was um, so happy the first, when we were talking about the first two seasons and he was laughing and he was having a great time. And then he, he said, can we take a little break and pick this up in, in like an hour and a half? And I said, sure. And then we came back and then he had to talk about the rough times of moonlighting and his brow was up and he you know, was crinkling his face and he was clenching his hand and it was painful for him to tell me the stories. And that, when I was done with that interview, that was the hardest part of the whole book for me because it was kind of early on. And that's when I knew, oh, this book's going to be sad. Like this book's going to be tough at the end. Like my Letterman book, the ending is sad because he retires 
but it's like rolling to that sadness and it's nostalgia. But this was like, it's dirty and grimy and messy. And I knew that I was going to have to work through that. And that was the hardest challenge for me was to capture the happiness that the beginning is and the pain that the end is. Makes sense. It was an adventure. Definitely. But to flip that question, what would you say was your most favorite part of writing or your favorite chapter of the book? Um, well, I love this question, by the way. Thank you. I don't think anyone has asked me like something that I loved doing. Um, and, and so I don't, I've never got to talk about this before, but there's what Moonlighting is most famous for, I think, is probably their Shakespeare episode. It was very creative and it's just something that really sticks in people's minds because yes. the whole time they um, are in Shakespeare garb and they speak, the whole episode is an iambic pentameter yep. and I was like I every chapter that I do I write a little bit of an intro and anything I could really say about the episode was going to be in what someone else said you know and I kind of had nothing to say about it and then I got this great idea to write it as if it was part of Shakespeare. So I looked for, I, I googled Taming of the Shrew and this, the screenplay or Shakespeare document, whatever they mm -hmm. call it. Was he a screenwriter? I doubt it. <laughs> um, the play. How about that? We'll, we'll use the go. word play. <laughs> the, the play was on the internet. And so I just looked for a stanza that kind of looked meaty enough that I wanted. And I took that stanza, copied it, put it in a Word document, and then I just rewrote the words. And that becomes the front part of that thing. So the beginning of the Shakespeare episode is written in iambic pentameter, right from Shakespeare. And he's dead, so that guy can't sue me. That's right. Um, <laughs> so that's actually, that was so much fun. And while I was doing it, I was like, there's so much in this book that no one is going to realize, one, that I did this or remember this part of the book. But as a writer, it was fun. It was a fun thing to do. And it also showed me how hard it had to be for the writers to write a 45 minute script. I mean, I think I do like eight lines. And even that was tricky because I you have to keep the beat uh, to keep it an iambic pentameter. So basically, I'm saying I'm Shakespeare. <laughs> That's what I took away from that, too. Yes. Yeah, yeah basically. <laughs> so Moonlighting was unique in how it presented itself. It broke the third wall. It was very unpredictable. And I think you mentioned before that it was just a show that could not be recreated today. Some of those things, as you're watching maybe like more modern TV, are you seeing elements of moonlighting in those current shows? Well, yes and no. I mean, certainly moonlighting did shape modern television. But the things that made moonlighting moonlighting, in my opinion, I've only seen it in two shows ever since moonlighting. And you guys are pop culture junkies. So I'd love for you to jump in here and tell me I'm wrong or tell me where you see this in a show that I'm not remembering. But the two shows that I think are as creative as Moonlighting is Community, which used to be an NBC sitcom, 
And the other one is Atlanta that's on FX right now. Well, hopefully it hasn't been on in a while, but I think it's coming back. And strangely, they both have, I'm just going to call him Childish Gambino because I can't think of his other name right now. That's his music name. What's his name, Pop Culture Junkies? Oh, um... Donald Glover? Yes, she wins. Michelle Michelle wins, give her. <laughs> she gets an extra, Yeah, she gets 10 bonus points. Uh, but both those shows, you could tune in and it would be a completely different show. Like you would have no idea. Like one, you know, like on Community, one time the whole episode is like an LA Law or a Law and Order episode, or it might be a musical episode. And, and Atlanta does the same things. But for the most part, TV wants to be the same every week. Now you guys tell me a show that you think has that. One of the shows that came to mind when I was reading about some of the interesting quirks of Moonlighting was Lucifer. I don't know if you'd consider that a good sample. Interesting. Okay. I actually haven't seen Lucifer, but I've heard about it, but I can see the romance side of it. Michelle? Michelle? Uh, I definitely agree that Community is set up in the format of Moonlighting. Thinking about it, I would say Buffy the Vampire Slayer. They they have the format, but then they also veer off and we had a silent episode. There was a musical episode. There was an episode from a character's point of view. It's It follows very moonlighting storytelling wise. Well, and you know, what's interesting is, well, first of all, I love the Buffy answer. Uh, Buffy's a great answer. I'm going to steal that next time I'm on a show. I'm going to say Buffy (laughs) Community and Atlanta and also say I was the one that thought of Buffy. But you're you're totally right because when you think of how there's an episode where Xander, it's called the Zeppo, I think, where the whole episode is from Xander's point of view and he doesn't, and like the viewers don't really get to see what the big bad that's going going on and the end of the world that was really creative and a completely different view mm-hmm. um but the thing that's interesting about dan Harmon on community and glenn gordon karen is they both were drummed off their shows mm-hmm. um so there's a, a similar thing from that as well interesting so for aspiring writers who are listening what can you tell us about the life of a tv writer and do you have any tips aspiring writers could benefit from um Well, about some, I can only speak to someone who writes about TV, because as of now, I haven't got to do my own show, but I'm trying. I think the thing that I would tell writers is you need to write all the time. You don't wait for somebody to come and get you. None of my books somebody's asked me to do because nobody would ask for these books. There's nobody wanting this. There is nobody clamoring for what happened on Moonlighting. People had forgotten about the show. In fact, I just did an interview before where they said, why would you do this book? Like, there's no audience for it. And I was like, oh, an audience. Dang it. That's what I'm missing. Um, You have to do what you're interested in or, you know, nothing else matters. Um, I... I write because I have to, to live. I mean, I'm interested and I'm always working and I, I don't get a lot back from it. That's not, I mean, in that way, like in the way that Stephen King 
gets stuff back from it, you know? So that's, that's what I would tell young aspiring writers is just do it. And who cares if anybody sees it at all, they're probably not going to, but you did something. And then the other thing I always say is have an end and make that end. I had picked that this book was going to come out June 1st, 2021. Um, I think I picked that date, maybe before COVID, but how could any of us really remember what life was like when COVID came or not came? But the point was that ending was there. And I was going to make that date regardless of what happened. And this is the best book I could do by that date. You could work on it forever. And I'm, you know, and you then you never end. And that's the difference between writers who wish they were writers and writers who have published work because you finish. You have to finish. You guys know this as podcasters. You could edit this forever mm-hmm. and never put it out and be like, oh, I wish Michelle came in just a little bit sooner there. Let's let's move that there. And oh, we'll, we'll clip him and move him around. Oh, hell, just put it out. I mean, and, and, do, and get it better on the next show. So that, that is my advice. You definitely, I think you should write, regardless of what the topic is. You just never know who it's going to touch. Moonlighting hasn't been on in years, but you write this book and all of a sudden people are going to be like, well, wait a minute, I haven't thought about Moonlighting and I haven't thought about this and this and this. And it is a pop culture show that is going to eventually somebody's going to want to talk about it again. So you're writing it and somebody's going to somebody's going to see it. It doesn't matter. Somebody will see it. No, and I think it really did touch a lot of people, and there have been so many surprises for me in doing this book. Um, Vanity Fair contacted me and said they wanted to do an excerpt from the book because the managing editor of Vanity Fair loved Moonlighting and wanted to do it. So for the rest of my life, I'm going to be able to say I'm a Vanity Fair contributor because they did a chapter. And, you know, I I didn't think that was going to happen. That's crazy. So you you don't know, which is why I just move forward with whatever, one, whatever interviews I can get and whatever I'm interested in and whatever my passion is. Uh, I think I could probably do a show that I didn't really care about, but why would I want to? I I mean, I just, I want to do what I want (laughs) to. But I think that passion does convey in the work because reading through it, it made me want to go back and watch the episodes through the lens of what you talked about in the book. So, you know, I agree that you never know where it's going to land, but for what it is, I feel like it's such a cool and like honest example of what Moonlighting is. So it sparks that reinterest in going back and seeing what it was about. Oh, thank you. That really means a lot. And we appreciate you being here with us. We've enjoyed talking with you, but Moonlighting and Oral History is available from Fayetteville Mafia Press. And how else can listeners find you online? And are there any future projects that you'd like to promote? Uh, you can find me at scottryanproductions.com. And on Twitter, I'm at scottluckstory. And fayettevillemafiapress.com is the production company that uh, or printing company that me and my partner David Bushman we do that we put out six books a year about pop culture and true crime and sports is what we're sort of trying to get that company off the ground Um, my next book is going to be about Twin Peaks 
Next year is the 30th anniversary of the movie Firewalk With Me. So I'm interviewing a lot of the actors and things from that. And, and it's going to be a little bit of a different book. It's not going to be an oral history. I'm never doing an oral history again unless someone pays me a ton of money. That's that's my rule. They're just, it's too much and it's, I'm sick of it. I don't want to do it anymore. So, but I mean, if Sarah Jessica Parker wants to call me and like do a Sex in the City book, I'm not going to tell Sarah Jessica Parker no. Right. <laughs> that would be silly. But otherwise, I'm not doing another one. Oh, right. I guess they're rebooting it. Yeah. I, it'll be interesting. They are coming back. And I'm curious how they're going to handle all that. Are you guys fans of Sex in the City? I'm not. Okay. Yes, I am a fan of Sex in the City, but I really don't know how the reboot is going to be without Samantha, since she was pretty much the most likable character on the show. She was the most real out of them anyway. Because <laughs> I like to annoy people. I love it, too. I, I really love it. Like, I have all the episodes, and I think it's a great show, and I would love to do one of these books on it, because I think it would be well done. But... Carrie Bradshaw is a horrible human being. <laughs> and it is amazing to me how many people don't know that. Like the show is not like, oh, this these are great people that you want to be. It's like watching Breaking Bad. Okay, you're watching a horrible person that you should not be rooting for. Excellent point. <laughs> so Scott, how has the pandemic affected your writing? I thought for sure we were going to get a Michelle uh, response to that. And you were like, you know what? I'm not giving her time. We're going to go right into the pandemic. I'm going to carry Bradshaw this interview and I'm just going to. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely do. Yeah. And I like that you're Carrie Bradshawing this. Uh, your interruption matched your shoes. Um, <laughs> how did the pan? How did I start the pandemic? What was the question? How has the pandemic affected your writing and production for your publishing company? It didn't affect my writing at all because I I work every day anyway. So in a in a sad way, the lockdown made no difference in my life because I usually work 10 to 12 hours a day anyway. The publishing company, it affected it quite a bit. We had two books come out during that time that just honest to goodness came out and died. And we're a small company and we can't really, we can't take that very much. I mean, we really, we balance things out that we sort of need the books. We can't just do a book and have it not sell. That's That doesn't work. I mean, all businesses face that. But I mean, for a small company, that can be devastating. Uh, luckily, the funds that the government put out sort of paid for those books, but it really was heartbreaking for the authors because those books just, there were no bookstores open. You can't ship books mm. um, when there's no bookstore open. So that was really hard, but we did weather it through. We had a book called Laura's Ghost come out by Courtney Stallings, which was a different Twin Peaks book. And that book did really well. And it, and it floated us enough to make it to Moonlighting. And I think we're going to make it out the other side. But it was kind of, you know, everyone suffered. So I'm, I'm not saying that, that we had it any worse than anyone else. But for a small business, it was really rough. Makes sense. 
So Scott, that's the end of our questions. Is there anything that you wish we had asked you? Anything else that we can help cover? No, I think you, I really appreciate you reading the book. Um, that was kind, especially since you haven't seen the show before, because a lot of times people that I've done this, they don't read the book, which is fine. Uh, but I can tell that you did. And that is very kind of, of you. So I really appreciate it. Uh, you guys tell me what's your next episode. What do you What do you guys got coming up for Pop Culture Junkies? That's a good question. Michelle and I were actually talking about interviewing someone who is a cosplayer. Um, so mm-hmm. that'll probably be our next up. And you know, we're we're always talking about you know different areas of pop culture, I guess. But Michelle and I have both been waiting for Black Widow to come out, so I think we're going to probably dedicate an episode just to talking about the movie. <laughs> okay. Yes, and and that's just out right now, right? So you have yes. you seen it? I haven't. I think Michelle watched it last night. And was it good, Michelle? She's speechless. The movie was so good. <laughs> that she cannot talk. She's speechless. It was crazy. Maybe she's saving all her content for the episode. Yeah. <laughs> what, is she going to give it away here? She's a professional. She knows. Exactly. Oh, no. Well, I think we've officially lost Michelle's audio. You can never count on technology, right? Actually, you can. You can count on it to never work. This That's is fair. my big thing that annoys me. Nothing works. What 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 works? Nothing. My phone is never working. My Bluetooth mm-hmm. things, they're not working. My printer, yeah, I have to beg it. Please print, please. Just this time. <laughs> well, I feel like I've I've been um, you know, obnoxious the entire time and caused trouble as best I can. I hope I had a hot take and a cool, what is the other thing? I love it so much, I have to look at it every time. A cool commentary, a hot take, a cool commentary, and saucy bits. That's what and we're adding bits. to it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Scott, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up, but thank you so much for your time and for being with us. We really enjoyed having you. And um, if you're down for it, we would love to talk with you again in the future. I would love to come back on and we can talk about any pop culture thing you want. I've got opinions on everything, so I'm always up for it. And you don't have to go through whoever you went through. You can just email me or whatever. My email's in the back of the book. Perfect. Thank you so much. I had a great time. Well, that's it for today's episode of Pop Culture Junkies. Join the conversation with us at Junkies Pop. We are on Twitter at J-U-N-K-E-E-S-P-O-P. And we're also on Instagram and Facebook at Pop Culture Junkies with two E's. Thank you so much for geeking out with us today. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>